This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor John Navin from Coastal Carolina University, where he teaches early American history and studies community race and violence in colonial America. And he has published a new book entitled The Grim Years, Settling South Carolina, 1670 to 1720. So, John, welcome to the journal. Thank you. John, before we get talking about your book, as you know, you've been at Coastal for a while. Folks in South Carolina like to know who you are, who are your people, where you came from, that sort of stuff. So let's start off with who is John Navin and how did you get here? Well, I think the honest truth is I'm still identified as a Yankee in the South. I grew up uh, just outside of Boston and I was uh, educated at three universities uh, within 10 miles of Boston, uh, earning my doctorate at Brandeis University. Um, I taught at Brandeis for a year, but then came down to a little school in North Carolina, Pfeiffer University, taught there for a couple of years, and then was fortunate enough to uh, get a job at Coastal Carolina University in 1999. So I've been here for quite some time uh, teaching early American history. Um, But I am still, I sound like a New Englander. I still go to Maine in the summers, and uh, people look at me, I think, as a northerner writing southern history these days. Well, our mutual friend, the late Chaz Joyner, used to talk about been years and come years. You're a come year. (laughs) (laughs) Even, Even though you've been here almost a quarter of a century. To your book, you're basically talking about the first 50 years of South Carolina history, which is the proprietary period, as a lot of us have called it. You started off with a quote from Thomas Hobbes' uh, Leviathan. So you kind of used the Leviathan to set the stage for this book. So let's talk about that. Well, I use Leviathan, but I uh, juxtapose it with uh, John Locke's writings. Um, I opened the book with Hobbes and Locke because I think that Carolina had different possibilities And I find that Thomas Hobbes' view of an unregulated society descending into chaos was one direction that South Carolina could go. John Locke, uh, working with uh, Shaftesbury, saw a, a different view. He wrote some years later, but shortly before Carolina was established. And uh, the view there was a uh, commercial dynamic society well-managed and devoted to establishing uh, agricultural commercial exports that would support not only the colony but contribute to the kingdom at large. And this idea existed, persisted, that if everybody worked to better them, themselves and their own situation, it would better the colony and, and better the, the kingdom uh, as a whole. Shortly into the book, I talk about Bernard Mandeville's uh, fable of the bees. And in that, there's uh, some uh, very witty lines uh, about how the whole hive benefited from private vices. And, and so starting out with, with Hobbes, I'm trying to show where Carolina could go wrong in Hobbes' view as an unregulated society with no strong leadership. But I'm holding open the possibility that it could fulfill the, the vision of Shaftesbury and, and Locke, that it might become a, a jewel in, in the crown of the empire. Uh, it might benefit all the people in the colony and turn out to be one of the overseas gems in the British Empire. Hobbes' view of the world really is rather dark. Very much so. And, of course, there is already an example that you could look at in 17th century English history, and that is, of course, the development of Barbados and the later English colonies in the Caribbean, but particularly Barbados. And I want to thank you because you do agree that there was a Barbadian connection. There have been people who for years have tried to say there was no real connection with Barbados, that that was a myth and what have you. I think the Barbados connection is undeniable. 
it seems to me that the, the controversy is the degree to which the Barbadians influenced uh, South Carolina's development. And I believe you and I are in agreement that it was a very substantial degree. Uh, I think when we talk about hegemony, mm-hmm. uh, when, I, when I talk about Plymouth Colony, for example, I, I say the separatists who came over from Holland eventually were in a minority, but, but there was uh, hegemony. They had control of the colony in many ways, despite their shrinking numbers on a percentage basis. I think uh, we see the same thing in South Carolina. The Barbadians, there is disagreement on how many came and what their status was, whether they were all planters or sons of planters or how many were indentured servants or just um, former servants who couldn't get land in Barbados. So those questions may still be up in the air. But one thing that I think is undeniable is the influence of the more powerful Barbadians who settled at Goose Creek, those Goose Creek men who were prominent in the Indian trade and then in the uh, Indian slave trade and in the slave trade itself. And politically, they wielded incredible power, and they were really the uh, central group that opposed the proprietors, the Lord's proprietors, and and they're the reason that the uh, fundamental constitutions uh, never were approved by the settlers. Well, that's, of course, one of the myths of South Carolina history. Everybody talks about the fundamental constitutions, all the various editions, none of which was ever adopted. So the fundamental constitutions were never the law of the land in South Carolina, although political factions, not just during the colonial period, but later on, have referred to the fundamental constitutions as, almost as if they were holy writ, uh, depending on which version you, right. you you use. And of course, that has to do with Shaftesbury and, and his reputation. Uh, along with locks. Uh-huh. Earlier, you referred to uh, this period that I write about as the proprietary period. And uh, I point out at some point in the book uh, that this was actually uh, the disintegration of uh, proprietorship uh, from the very start, from the arrival of Carolina um, all the way through the end of the period I discuss. Uh, what you see is the uh, shrinking power, if you will, or shrinking influence of the proprietors finally to a point that uh, in 1719, there's this uh, so-called revolution in Carolina, but it's really the culmination of constant diminution of uh, power of the uh, proprietors versus that of the settlers. All right. It's a story that's often told, but I think for our listeners, we might go back and, and start with Barbados and then how the proprietorship evolved, at least initially. Surely. Um, Barbados is remarkable for a number of reasons. The Spanish were the first Europeans to set foot there, and they lost interest in this little speck of an island. And it was only around 1625 that the English settled there and tried to grow tobacco, and that didn't work out. Uh, The people in Barbados, while they tried to grow tobacco, were smoking Virginia tobacco because theirs was so bad. Uh, And they they did that with uh, indentured servants, and it was not working out well. But around the 1640s, they got into sugar cultivation, and uh, the Dutch had a hand in this. And once they started growing sugar, uh, they found that now there was a crop that would grow plentifully and had a great market at a great price in Europe. The amount of indentured servants available to those planters was uh, insufficient, and they started to rely on the labor of enslaved Africans, to some degree taking the example that uh, had been set in Brazil. So it's, it's not like they started this. All right, when we talk about indentured servants, let's explain what that, what that meant. If you're a young lad in Devonshire, you might want to come to the New World, uh, but you can't afford to. So you're going to do an indenture, and that's going to, somebody's going to pay your way. Right. The indentures that these servants signed themselves or their parents uh, placed them into signing a contract, or they were even uh, forced into an indenture by a magistrate or for other reasons if they were orphans. Um, These typically were seven years long, and during that time, your master or your owner, it could be said, was responsible for feeding you, clothing you, giving you a shelter. 
and uh, you worked for for him for seven years for no salary, but if you survived that long, then you were entitled to your freedom dues, which often meant a little bit of land, maybe 10, 12 acres, and some tools or perhaps a, a gun or a suit of clothes. That became a problem in Barbados, as given that it's a small island and land was so valuable, uh, they could no longer give these servants who survived um, land. It's interesting uh, when people talk about the headright system, which is a means of giving land to attract settlers. In Barbados, it was 10 acres. And of course, you get out to Carolina and it's 10 times right, the- 10 times that. But not only were these indentured servants, the term master was used. And I think that's people need to understand that. And that, that included discipline. That included often a young man might be at the end of his indenture, but then the document all of a sudden changed and the date he basically was kept pretty much in involuntary servitude. And most people don't realize these servants could be bought and sold. They could be transferred from one owner to the other as as a a business deal. We know that in Virginia, a lot of uh, female servants came over and because of the gender disparity where men outnumbered women 10 to 1 early on, those women would be purchased from their owners so that their new owner could marry them. So this idea of of servants being somebody who uh, basically were some kind of apprentices, uh, that's not the way indentured servitude was. And and it's worth pointing out that um, it was a a change uh, from the system that had existed for a very long time in Europe where the apprentice would be a young man who who would be trained in a skill, and eventually he would be able to open up his own business or shop. Um, this wasn't so much the case with servants; they were just turned loose and, and given a, a little something to get ahead. And of course, there were even a few of those those young men in Barbados who hadn't wanted to come at all. They had been Barbados, and uh, uh, I've often said the easiest way to to remember that is we talk about in early 20th century, late 19th century, people being Shanghai'd. Right. And that was the same thing. Young lads, a recruiting agent goes to the local tavern, gives them all a couple of pints, and the next thing you know, they wake up on a ship bound for Barbados. Where they'll be treated, by some accounts, worse than the slaves because they will not be owned for life. There's no purchase price other than the payment for his passage. Um, The Irish saw a lot of people basically kidnapped in Barbados, as you say. And uh, in the English Civil Wars, uh, if you were on the losing side, you might find yourself in a sugar cane field on Barbados. All right. Sugar is what turns Barbados around. It goes from being a little England to very much a Caribbean monocultural colony, making lots of money. And that changes the, the society in Barbados. It became a very rich society for those who had the means. A, a rich and increasingly perilous society. Men were doing their best to buy up the land so uh, you would have as large a sugar plantation as you could, uh, which of course means that the, the lesser men, the smaller men were being squeezed and squeezed and, and pushed out. Um, the a uh, number of uh, enslaved Africans uh, really started to increase in the mid-1640s. And by 1660, the racial composition of the island was about 50% white, 50% black. And by 1680, there were twice as many Africans as Europeans on the island, which shows you the extraordinary growth um, and one thing that we have to keep in mind is Barbados is a very small island, but it has this huge impact. For one reason, uh, it is where the plantation system is really perfected. And what we're talking here is you use an enslaved workforce to produce basically one crop that can be sold for a very high profit, and that crop is exported. And this is the essence of the plantation system. And, and Barbados really is a cultural hearth for the English West Indies. That's right. Um, and, South Carol- and South Carolina. Uh, now, contemporary accounts of, of Barbados talk about one goal these folks had was to get rich. 
and to enjoy what they have. You know, it was, they were like the grasshoppers of Aesop's fable. You know, eat, drink, and be merry because they did have to, you know, life was perilous on that little island. Disease, weather, European enemies, because you're right in the midst of the Spanish Empire, the Dutch are right around the corner, although they were usually allies, even the Portuguese. And after 1680, the threat of slave revolt was there. The one thing they didn't have to face was a Native American population because the Spaniards had cleaned out. There, there, was, there were no human beings living on Barbados when the English got there. Well, l- l- let me make a couple of points here. Um, actually, the, there were Native Americans on Barbados, and, and uh, the South Carolinians could take great credit for that, mm-hmm. if you want to call it credit. Um, and even the Puritans up in Massachusetts. So when they conquered the Pequot in the Pequot War, they shipped the male captives to Barbados. And South Carolina developed a thriving Indian slave trade where they shipped Native Americans to Barbados. I don't think we have any good numbers, reliable numbers, on the number of Native Americans at any given time in Barbados. But um, some historians estimate that before 1700, more Native Americans were shipped to Barbados, then enslaved Africans were brought to South Carolina. And that's something that I think would come as a surprise to most people. Uh, The other thing is, I know you mentioned after 1680, the threat of slave rebellions. But I think if we look at things like the Barbadian Slave Code instituted in 1660, Mm -hmm. with these terrible punishments and uh, strict controls on the the movement and uh, activities of uh, enslaved Africans, we see that whites at that time were already very nervous now that blacks equaled the number of whites on the island. And there's always that threat, not just in Barbados, but in other places, including South Carolina and Virginia, that the lower masses would rise up against the rich. And so the idea that servants and slaves might gather together in in a revolt was the ultimate fear, the ultimate threat. And Barbadians, uh, the rich planters, started to build their houses like fortresses, even with moats and, and strong gates and, and shutters. And basically, uh, like in, the, in New England, where you had a garrison house and on the frontier where, where you could go when you were under attack. Well, um, in Barbados, they started to build the, their own homes like garrison houses. There was always a fear. And, and certainly that fear was justified because uh, of the, the brutal treatment and the death rate. Um, one planter estimated that it, uh, I might have to check the book for the exact numbers, but I believe it. he said if, if you had 100 slaves and you on Barbados and you did not constant re, constantly replenish the number of slaves, in 10 years you would have no slaves. So the death rate... Um, not only surpassed the birth rate, but the death rate was excessive uh, to such a degree that um, the whole slave population would die out if you didn't replace it, replenish it on a constant basis. And what about the white population? Well, Barbados was unhealthy for anyone. And the white population uh, suffered from uh, the many diseases. Um, In fact, uh, it's likely that they were susceptible to um, some of the dis- diseases that uh, these enslaved Africans had a little more immunity to, um, malaria obviously being a killer, but uh, other diseases like smallpox and, and eventually cholera and so forth would also trouble the island. Um, it was a place that uh, the food supply, how would we say this? They imported food because the island was so small and the demand for sugar so great that they would rather plant sugar and be without food on the expectation that they could buy food from other places. So you didn't go out and and, uh, pick a fine meal out of your your garden. Um, What you ate was perhaps uh, came across the the ocean from um, South Carolina in barrels. That's going to be one of the reasons that South Carolina comes into existence. Uh, There's an interesting parallel later on in the 19th century in South Carolina with the expansion of cotton, particularly in the period after the Civil War. South Carolina has to 
import its food. It's even importing hay uh, because everything they can plant in cotton, they're planting in cotton. All right, John, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm talking with John Navin about his book, The Grim Years, Settling South Carolina, 1670 to 1720. And so let's move on from Barbados to South Carolina. Well, let's talk about the Barbadians headed to South Carolina. When King Charles II uh, accedes to the throne in 1660, he doesn't uh, regain that throne that uh, his father had occupied on his own. Um, He is helped onto the throne or placed on the throne by influential uh, Englishmen and Um, One of the ways that he thanked some of those supporters who put him in power in what we call the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, uh, one of the ways he he thanked them was uh, eight lords proprietors were given the tract for Carolina, not just South Carolina, but both uh, what encompassed North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, really. Mm. And this at the time uh, extended all the way to the Pacific in terms of the charter. The proprietors did not want to settle there themselves, but they did plan on populating the colony uh, with people who would pay them rents. Uh, So they invited settlers. uh, Some came down from New England, and a group came over from Barbados. And the New Englanders uh, quickly turned around after uh, looking at the area around Cape Fear River and deciding it wasn't for them. Um, The Barbadians uh, spent a a bit longer. They actually established what seemed to be the beginnings of a thriving colony, but after a couple of years, they packed up and moved out. It was uh, at that juncture that the Lord's proprietors decided that you can't just allow settlers or encourage settlers to go over and leave them on their own. You had to give them uh, direction, uh, a plan, a strategy, if you will. And that's where Shaftesbury and John Locke, working with uh, the other seven proprietors other than Shaftesbury, they develop this plan, the grand model for Carolina, and they recruit settlers from Barbados because Barbadians have experience working in a colonial setting, making good money, and uh, that's something that the proprietors wanted to uh, duplicate in Carolina. So, excuse me. And yes. another thing that those settlers in Barbados, if they had been seasoned, that is, they had survived a year or two in Barbados, the odds of their living in Carolina was greatly enhanced. That's right. So they uh, agreed after they negotiated some changes. Uh, one of those things that they insisted on was that they could have slaves and they would get head rights for those enslaved Africans, just the same as they would get head rights for their servants. So just to be clear, a a head right is normally given to somebody who comes to settle. And in the case of South Carolina, the first head rights were enormous. They were 150 acres for yourself, 150 acres for your wife and each child you brought, but 150 acres for each servant and even each enslaved African that you brought. Um, That head right would be reduced uh, in later years. But uh, when you just do the the math, if if you bring over uh, even a small family and a handful of servants, you can quickly have five or 600 acres of, of good Carolina land. So these Barbadians who came over, they had experience, and to their frustration and and that of the proprietors, they could not uh, find a crop that would duplicate the the profits of sugar. Uh, They couldn't find anything that would grow in quantity that had a a ready market in England. And we know uh, that during this period, rice became... Uh, the great thriving crop in South Carolina, but was only during the second half of this period. Rice really didn't show up until about 1695, but the colony was planted in 1670. It's interesting that the proprietors were serious about this. They actually had an experimental garden that was the first governor's instructions. I mean, they were trying indigo, they were trying cotton, they were trying tobacco, all sorts of weird things, and rice. And rice. But nothing really took off. So the first ones there... All right, we can 
get some cattle. They, you know, that became an export. Naval stores, of course, became a very important at the turn of the at the turn of the century. And then there was the Indian trade. Right. Deerskins, really. Deerskins. So let's let's talk about that because that yes, people made money with these other things, but it was the deerskin trade that generated the first great fortunes and the next ones on the Indian slave trade. Right. Uh, one thing we have to keep in mind is these colonies, although they all were unique in many ways, um, the founders or uh, uh, planters of these colonies uh, were aware of what had happened in other colonies. And certainly up in uh, the Northeast, uh, there was this very lucrative fur trade that the French and the English and the Dutch had been involved in. And it was clear that you can't just uh, let anybody run run around pell-mell try to uh, either trap the beaver or, or work with Native Americans on your own. You wanted to control that trade. Monopolies were the way to go. So there was a thriving deerskin trade. In fact, if you look at the numbers, they're frightening. You wonder how there could be a living deer in the South today when you look at the, the number of deer skins that were shipped from not only South Carolina, but other colonies and uh, the, by the Spanish. Um, but this deerskin trade proved to be not only lucrative, but something that needed to be controlled in order to steer the profits into the right pockets. The proprietors wanted to control the deerskin trade. And it ended up that the deerskin trade was managed, but it was managed more for the benefit of those people in uh, Goose Creek. Those leading Barbadians were the ones who got their hands on that trade, and they were the ones who accrued the, the greatest profits from it. Even though there were several attempts at reform in the early uh, 18th century, let's just say I think the rules were honored more in not being observed than right. they were. But folks don't realize that the South Carolina Indian trade, at the, we're talking about the turn of the 18th century, reached all the way to the Mississippi. It did. And it, it wasn't just deerskins, unfortunately, because the deerskin trade established trade networks and and a, uh, a, a bevy, a group of traders, professional traders, men who had the uh, courage and the audacity and, and the uh, entrepreneurial instinct to go out into country well beyond the defended borders of Charleston and, and go and travel among Native American tribes and uh, negotiate deals with them and get them involved in, in providing deer skins. But before long, and we're talking within the first decade, um, that trade also came to uh, involve arranging for uh, tribes to raid other tribes and take captives that would then be provided to the English. So these English traders uh, or I should say at this point, these South Carolina traders were out there trying to gather as many deerskins as they could through the efforts of the Native Americans they worked with. But also, uh, increasingly, they developed an Indian slave trade. And that meant having the uh, Native Americans you were allied with provide as many captives as possible uh, that you could then ship out of Charleston over to Barbados, where they would be uh, laborers working alongside the enslaved Africans in the sugar fields on the Barbados. And the other uh North American colonies as well. Uh, it's very early on, New Jersey passes a law against uh, importing Native American slaves from South Carolina. Not that, that they opposed slavery, but it, they they thought they were trouble. Right. Uh, uh, one thing that I hope people who do read this book won't miss, I at one point give a list from uh, Boston newspapers of uh, Carolina Indians, either for sale. Right. John, just take a minute. They're very specific about not just an enslaved Indian, but they are Carolina, South Carolina Indians. Would you read a couple of those? I think that's, that was, was fascinating. I'd be glad to. Uh, March 24th, 1707, a pretty Carolina Indian boy, aged about 12 years, to be sold, inquire of John Campbell, portmaster of Boston. September 29th, 1707, ran away from her master, Nathaniel Baker of Boston, a tall, lusty Carolina Indian woman named Sarah, aged about five or six and 20 years. 
March 29, 1708, to be sold at the sign of the Blue Anchor in Boston, five Carolina Indians, a man, a boy, and three women. August 27, 1711, a Carolina Indian woman, aged about 25 years, to be sold by Mrs. Grace Rankin and to be seen at her house in Mackerel Lane in Boston. Uh, jumping ahead a little bit, we see uh, in 1712, a Carolina Indian man, aged about 22 years, to be sold. A Carolina Indian boy, aged about 14 years. A Carolina Indian boy, about 11 years old, and ran away from their masters. This one I is the one I hope that people didn't overlook because there's something in here that I think would surprise uh, a, a lot of people, including many historians of New England. September 17, 1716, ran away from their masters in Boston, three Carolina Indians, two men servants and one woman. They speak but broken English, about 30 years of age or above. One from Mr. Samuel Adams Malter, named James, well set. He hath a leather jacket, black stockings. That is Samuel Adams Sr., the father of the famous patriot Sam Adams in Boston, the fellow who's on the, the Sam Adams beer can. Um, this is evidence that... His father was uh, the owner of at least one Carolina Indian, and Sam Adams then, uh, we have to assume, grew up in a household where there were enslaved Carolina Indians, uh, one or more. I think that probably comes as a shock to people here and people up in Boston. Well, one of the things that was interesting to me is almost half of these advertisements are for women. And uh, many of those that aren't women are young boys, 10, yes. 12, 14 years old. Yeah. And of course, people might say, well, didn't they keep Indian slaves in South Carolina? They, yes, they did. And people who have studied the history of cooking, if you look at the enslaved women in how early 18th century households, because that's when we first pick up the inventories, most of the women are listed as cooks. We have uh, in the records uh, accounts by Native Americans who say that the English traders preferred women and boys or women and children. So um, when there was a, uh, a slave raid basically conducted by one tribe on the other, women and children were often taken as captives, but the men often were killed defending themselves and their families or taken prisoner and and died in ritual torture. And of course, you've got a control factor with an adult male is a potential troublemaker. The, the other thing is why Indian slavery in South Carolina uh, wasn't as big as, as the African-Americans would be, is that if you're a Native American and you're enslaved in South Carolina, you're on home turf. Right. It's easier to get away than if you're in New Jersey or New York or certainly Barbados. And let's not forget the fact that not only are, are you more likely to uh, succeed if you run away, but also you've got relatives out there and, and other members of, of your tribe who may not be content with you uh, being enslaved. And uh, they can come to you. And, and that represents yet another threat. John, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with John Navin about his book, The Grim Years, Settling South Carolina, 1670 to 1720. John, we were talking about the two big areas where the first great fortunes were made in South Carolina, the Indian fur trade, deerskin trade, the other was in the Indian slave trade. And of course, particularly the Indian slave trade begins to peter out. The deerskin trade remains a part of the economy up to the revolution, uh, but not, not a major part. Rice comes in in its own in the 1720s, and by 1730, it, it, really, it really takes off. But even with before rice is a major crop, South Carolinians are importing enslaved Africans, whether they're to work as cowboys with the cattle ranching industry, whether it's in naval stores, or whether it's just subsistence agriculture. And so by 1706, there's a black majority. People debate with 1706, it's, it's early. And then South Carolina begins to adopt a whole series of Negro acts or slave codes, and they look first to Barbados as a model. Right. 
Um, I'd like to, to talk about this uh, emergence of slavery for a minute, if we could. Sure. Uh, because I, I think a lot of historians might look at this book and say, well, we knew a lot of these things about South Carolina. Uh, that That's not particularly new, that it, Barbadians were influential and the proprietors uh, had a struggle on their hands and so forth. Um, one thing that I tried to do with this book, and I, I hope I succeed to some degree, is to show how different South Carolina is from other colonies in terms of the emergence and, and role of slavery and to try and get people thinking um, about slavery and, and about European attitudes towards it. Uh, let me be more specific. It probably should come as no surprise that um, the, the Barbadians who came over from the sugar fields of Barbados, where they were using enslaved Africans and had been using them since the 1640s and maybe earlier, okay, it should, should not come as a surprise that they wanted to bring slaves with them or once they got to Carolina, they wanted to purchase slaves. That was something they were accustomed to. Um, by 1670, the majority of the field hands in Barbados would have been black, not white. But what I want people to think about is the fact that there were a lot of people who came to, to Carolina, and increasingly, uh, over time, uh, the number of people in Carolina would come from England or Germany or France or, or other European uh, countries of origin, um, and they had not been raised in a slave society. They, in many cases, would have had no exposure to slavery, except to maybe hear about it or, or read about it. But certainly uh, the people in modern-day, present-day Germany uh, or in France, um, they would not be accustomed to going past fields of, of enslaved Africans. Yet when they came over, um, they saw Barbadians and, and some others uh, using slaves and, and getting a greater profit out of the work of those slaves than men without slaves were, were earning or garnering. And so they quickly started to consider slaves indispensable. And these people who had never been exposed to slaves and never used slaves in the past and had relied on their own labors or, or the work of servants and hired hands, they now thought that Without slavery, you'll just never get ahead. You'll never do well in Carolina. And again, I emphasize, these are people who did not come from societies with slaves. So how do we explain this, this mentality uh, or mentalité, as they would say, where you suddenly just accept the fact that you should own a human being and exploit that human being or as many of them as you can to your own benefit um, and, and be fine with that? Be, that's not just a cultural shift. That's that's talking about morality, and and you could bring religion into it. You could bring you could look at this from many different uh, perspectives. And the question is, why did people so easily uh, convert to this view that, that slavery was essential? Profit? Yes, that's the, the obvious explanation. But if if you were told today that somebody could come in and do your job for you and, and they'll just send you his paycheck, uh, you might think twice, is that right? And this is a, a big question about early Carolina that I want people to ask. How did this happen? Well, uh, let's look back at 17th century English morality. I mean, the English countryside, they, they might not be enslaved, but uh, using somebody and abusing somebody was not exactly foreign to any European culture. Now, of course, we, once you bring in race, that makes it a whole different, a whole different matter. It was okay, perhaps, and and you talk about this a little bit, right? Well, we we know that uh, you know serfs and peasantry uh, was the tradition that that these English people came out of. And so um, the exploitation of people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder was something that, uh, yes, was, was uh, common to virtually 
all of the societies in, in Western Europe. Well, so in that sense, I think you're, you're correct. Exploitation yeah. of, of workers is nothing new. Um, but in terms of enslaving uh, Africans, uh, very early on, the English get into that business, and it's okay because of race. Not only do they get into it, but they, the king will be a member of the Royal African Trading Company uh, before he becomes king, James II. Four of the proprietors are members of the Royal African Trading Company, I, I, at least four. Um, so, so the proprietors had reason to in, encourage the use of slaves because they thought it would um, help enlarge the, uh, the industry, the commerce, increase the number of exports, uh, make the colony more prosperous. And they also, uh, some of them would make good money um, in the slave trade. And did not the colony, and this is, I knew about the, the issuing of the, of the paper currency, but I, I had forgotten, and you reminded me, South Carolina, the Colonial Assembly created its own bank to lend potential planters money to purchase slaves. So... Uh, the only way you could get this loan, but the only thing you could put against it in terms of uh, collateral was either land or the slaves that you that you purchased. That's right. With with slaves to use as collateral, you could purchase more slaves. Yeah, we talked, and and I really like your point about. 50 years of the decline of the proprietorship. Uh, they tried four different editions of the fundamental constitutions. Each edition was r really to become a better recruiting tool. They were all, it was always a recruiting tool. The so-called freedom of religion uh, in South Carolina, which if you were, it was fine except if you were Roman Catholic. Right, uh, right. That was an attraction. But the biggest attraction, of course, was land and the chance to make money. It's very clear that Barbadian ethos of making money. It didn't matter how it was. I mean, the proprietors and certainly the royal customs official dealing with pirates, all of that was fine until the pirates became trouble. Then they got rid of them, right. uh, which those Goose Creek men, villains or heroes? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or both. Are, bo are, are both. <laughs> um, the late Bradley Barger, who taught at Carolina for, for many years, talked about the English in the 18th century was just like an Errol Flynn movie. They were swashing and buckling and beheading anybody who got in their way. And these guys, yes, for, for a while they were the anti-proprietary party. Then when it suited them, they supported the proprietors to put some of their local enemies out of business. That's right. Um, and actually the... The issue of religion and dissenters versus the Anglican Church was one thing that um, the proprietors did have some colonists who were on their side and who would have been willing, I think, to some degree to, to agree to the fundamental constitutions. But then they were put off by the, some decisions and developments regarding religion. So the proprietors seem to be in a, between a rock and a hard place on, on that. And, and uh, everything they did, every step they took, they, they lost eventually. Um, and if I could say one other thing, you, you mentioned uh, land and, and the amount of land given out. And, and the headwrites tell us how much land was given to these early proprietors. When I talk in, in my classes at Coastal Carolina University, when I talk about the, the uh, emergence of slavery and, and then the disappearance of slavery, because remember, every colony initially had slavery. They had mm -hmm. slavery and the Puritans had slavery. The Quakers had slavery. The, slavery was, was uh, something that, that there existed everywhere in, in the eastern seaboard. But it disappeared in some places partly because they just didn't need Slaves. They didn't need the labor. Up in New England, which was quickly overpopulated, there were plenty of sons and, and laborers and servants, and they, they couldn't grow big cash crops up there anyway. If you've ever lived in New England, you know it's a short growing season. If you give somebody 200 acres, 500 acres, 1,000 acres of good Carolina country, um, it does them no good if they don't have the labor to produce something on it, to do something with it. 
even if it's just to cut down the trees and, and produce lumber. You still need the labor to do that. And so when we look at the emergence of slavery, one thing we have to look at is the land distribution schemes, the availability of land. If, if you have land, it does no good if you don't put it to use. And that's where the demand for labor comes in. And that's an essential part of the story about the emergence of slavery, not just in Carolina, but uh, throughout the, the South where large headrights, uh, where men could acquire a lot of land and then ask themselves, well, how do I make a profit with it? Well, let's turn back to Mr. Hobbs, where he worries about chaos, and not just exploitation in terms of enslaved persons, but not loving thy neighbor, but taking advantage of, of, of your neighbor for, for profit. One of the best or worst examples is an early royal governor, Sir John Yeamans. That's right. Although the proprietors eventually would make sure people who came out or advised them to have enough food to last through the first six or eight months, he imported foodstuffs and sold it to the settlers at inflated prices. Very much a profiteer. And he wasn't the only governor. Uh, it was kind of a revolving door. And this is one of the troubles with the proprietorship is every now and then they got a good person who might die off or then there was that temptation of the Indian slave trade. There were, there were people even uh, worse, I guess, if we we're going to rate people on a scale of morality, uh, people worse than Yemen's. Uh, Seth Southall, mm-hmm. I believe, come, came down from North Carolina, and he was known to uh, uh, just appropriate things from people with, with no reason, just using his powers. And, and he uh, apparently had associates who were the, the most corrupt individuals in, in the calling, and he came down and had a brief appointment in South Carolina as, as governor. And then you get uh, Governor Moore, who basically launched a, a major raid on the Spanish in in Florida in order to capture uh, Native Americans that could then be sold to Barbadian sugar planters. Uh, if you look at the dates and you say, oh, 1702, well, well we've got uh, a war just brewing between England and Spain, and there's a, a reason to be uh, on the offensive. Well, if if we look at what he really did, they captured as, as many of these Native Americans as they could, and those captured by their Native American allies, they forced them to trade their Native American captives for gun and powder to maximize the number of captives they could take. When South Carolina helped out North Carolina in the Tuscarora War, the offer that was made by the North Carolinians was, uh, gee, there are thousands of Native Americans up here that that you could enslave if you came up and helped us out. And they took advantage of it. They sure did. In terms of the empire, one thing Governor Moore's raid did was it basically destroyed Spanish authority among the Native Americans in the Southeast. And it destroyed the South Carolina economy for quite some time. Well, that's what his enemies said. <laughs> I mean, after all, if you got somebody like Daniel Defoe, you can <laughs> writing writing your political pamphlets, you can you can pretty well damn anybody. <laughs> and he did. And he did. John, Alfred's giving me the wind up sign. Any last thoughts with our listeners before we sign off today? Well, I I started out the book contrasting the view of Thomas Hobbes with the uh, hopeful view of Locke and Shaftesbury. And uh, in the book, uh, I point out that while the view of of chaos and destruction and men at war with every other man around them, uh, that seemed to play out. uh, So the, the view of Hobbes seemed to be realized at moments. On the other hand, there was this slow movement Slow, I guess, is a relative term, but there was this movement towards the view of Locke and Shaftesbury where South Carolina would um, not only get on its feet commercially, but would would become uh, one of the most profitable colonies in the British Empire and certainly in in terms of the British colonies in North America, South Carolina became indispensable to the crown, so much so that they were willing to create a new colony, Georgia, to act as a military buffer to protect those South Carolina rice fields. So 
what I try to point out in the book is both of these visions, both of these visions of Hobbes and Locke are, are coming true, if you will. And it's only in the long term that the, the absolute chaos that Hobbes predicts will um, fade away and the colony will start to settle in the 1720s and 1730s into more stable pattern of leadership and we'll see the development of these immensely profitable rice fields and, and later on indigo and move towards that vision of, of Locke. So there's a lot to be said on both sides of that uh, equation in terms of the vision of what South Carolina could be and indeed did become. Okay. Well, John Navin, the author of the Grim Years, Settling South Carolina, 1670 to 1720. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Historically, it's been more than a century since anyone has written a book specifically devoted to the proprietary period of South Carolina history, not since Edward McCready did one back at the turn of the last century, and it's one that has been long overdue. John Navin's approach to look at history in a broader perspective, not just those at the top of the ladder, but those at the bottom as well. It's a fascinating account of the first 50 years of settlement in South Carolina's history. It set the stage for the later development of what became the most prosperous colony in British North America, all part of our state's history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.